You're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode eight of Book Talk Today, where we'll be joined by author and running coach Shane Benzie, uh, where we're going to talk about his book, The Lost Art of Running. Shane, it's good to have you on. Good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Uh, No, you're welcome. You're welcome. I know we just have a brief conversation discussing timely manners of books and uh, (laughs) followers, followers of my page will know that I'm a big advocate of books coming to you at the right time and i did a vlog the other day talking about how i signed up for a 50 kilometer and then you sent me the book and and i read it and i've been digesting it for the last couple of days thinking about ways i could implement the uh the uh the triad into my foot placement <laughs> thinking about that on my running plan so all these things that come to mind what what i wanted to ask you to start off with was you've had you've a breadth of experience when it comes to analyzing you know over 3000 runners you said in your book analyzing mm. from different continents and different countries i wanted to go sort of a couple of steps back and say why do you think running is now not as commonplace as it was previously now in a western society we have quite sedentary lives so we don't have to do the same things as other people have to do in other countries where did you find that turning point in history and, and why do you think it's gone so downhill since then? Yeah, so, so I guess if you go right back to the very start when we were kind of persistence hunting, you know, running around was one of the ways that we kind of earned our living. Um, and uh, that, you know, and, and evolved to do that. that. That was a big part of our evolution. You know, we are to a large degree the species that we are today on the back of having to perform that task. So I guess if you go back, so if you went back kind of 6 million years ago, um, we would have been very muscular and would have been kind of quadruped. So we would have been moving around on all fours, Mm. uh, very muscular and really not moving very far distances at all. But in the name of evolution, we kind of, we moved away from that. We developed as humans, a very, very clever foot and the ability to stand very tall, okay? Standing tall allowed, it us, allowed us to kind of load this elastic system that we have in the body. And it made us very efficient. And we had a very efficient foot. That meant we could cover much longer distances, catch more food, get a bigger brain, get a space program. If we look back at the, the, the chimpanzees who we would have been kind of hanging around with at the same time, they're kind of still very muscular um, and still sit, you know, kind of live in sort of a, a relatively small space. Um, so, you know, our big USP was standing tall on a very clever foot covering long distances. Mm. So that's, that's, I'm not saying we've necessarily been successful as a species, but that's, that's what we did. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we now populate the world, you know, on the back of that efficiency, essentially. Um, so we were, you know, de- we, we did develop as runners uh, and we ran for a long time. Um, and really, I guess when the, the farming revolution came and we stopped being hunter gatherers, we no longer needed to run. Uh, you know, and, and, and as an animal, because that's kind of what we are, you know, we are actually designed to be pretty lazy, not lazy in as much as we can't be bothered to do anything, but lazy in as much as we must save calories. Mm. So if we don't have to run to chase something or if we don't, or if we're not being chased by mm. something, 
then we don't run. So we didn't run for a long time. And then really, you know, and so we now find ourselves when we do run now, it's for pleasure. Mm. So, you know, we, so we are still designed to run, um, but really now just do it for pleasure rather than necessity. Yeah. And only the crazy people do it for like real pleasure. I feel like, I think a lot of people sort of have this idea. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uh, I think some people have this idea though, that they're either runners or they're not runners. And I think, I think your book highlights the fact that we're all born genetically with the ability to run. It's just, we've, that's why your your book's called the the lost art of running is the fact that we all have the capacity to, but we've just due to circumstance and evolution, we just haven't been in the position to utilize it best, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We are still very young as a species and and absolutely are designed to run um, and could and can, if we choose to, but many of us, you're right, will uh, say, I'm not a runner. And actually people ring me up for coaching and say, I just have to warn you, I'm not a runner. (laughs) Um, So, but yeah, we definitely all can, but you know, a lot, I think there are, there are two big things that kind of influence, there are many things that influence our movement because I see running as a movement skill. Yeah, we tend to treat running as this kind of blood and guts thing where we stick a pair of trainers on and we try really hard. But actually, I see running as a sequence of beautiful moves that propels your body. You know, that's how I like to think of running. So I see it as a movement skill. And there are two big, there are many influences, but the two really big influences on our movement, I think, in the Western world are, A, running, running is largely about posture, okay? There's lots of things going on, but posture is very fundamental to our running. But our dynamic posture is only ever going to be an extension of our everyday posture. Mm. So how we live our lives determines the kind of sea of tension that we take out into our running. And that tends these days, certainly in the Western world, to be a pretty negative posture, doesn't it? We sit a lot, you know, we just our body isn't in great positions. So we have a real challenge there to try and do something that's beautiful and dynamic with a body that's used to being in in some pretty strange situations. And then the second one, and this is probably more fascinating, I think that the first one would be quite widely accepted. The second one is that our dynamic movement, your movement, when you go out for a run tomorrow, although you've read the book now, so maybe it will be different, but when you go out for a run, your movement is based heavily on your perception Mm. of that movement. So what you assume is happening as you run has a huge influence on that run itself. Now your listeners might be thinking, yeah, but I don't really have a perception of my movement. I just run. Mm -hmm. We all do have a perception, even if it's a kind of a subliminal one. Mm -hmm. And the subliminal perception we have of our movement is mechanical because we grow up on a diet of biomechanics and biomechanics, I think is the way engineers describe movement. And we see ourselves as this kind of almost skeletal structure that moves with levers and muscles power those levers. And it's a way of looking at something. It's a subjective view. I think that's what makes moving exciting. But it doesn't inspire you to move in the way where we would engage this amazing system that we adapted to six million years ago, which is our USP. Mm. What's fascinating is... The moment you try and get someone now to to do something dynamic, they try and use the muscles we gave away a long time ago. And we ignore the amazing gift that Mother Nature gave us. Yeah, definitely that inherent. That's the thing I liked about the book is that that proprioception thing, because it made me think about, so I used to play quite a lot of golf 
So I was a big golfer. And and when I used to have coaching, it was a lot about what's feel and what's real. So the differences between feel and real. And a lot of the time when you're taking a swing or if you're stood over the ball, and a lot of it is posture as well, which is similar to running, but you can't think about the biomechanics when you're taking that swing because your mind and everything, your body's not going to function the same way. It's a lot about how you feel and the relationship between your hand-eye coordination, but also the way in which your body moves, turn, where your hands are. Everything has to work together. So when you're describing the running movement, I sort of saw parallels in between the running motion and golf or you know in the in the book you talked about tennis you talked about other examples and i i don't know whether i think about so then i i kind of thought to myself like what do i think about when i go for a run a lot of the time i think i just focus on breathing i think i know you, you mentioned that in the book as well quite a bit but there was things that i saw with my own running that like the head, like I never even thought about it. I think a lot of the time I do run with my head down, looking where I'm going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're talking about looking at the horizon. And I think you gave the example, say that the average size of a head is like 21 pounds. And if you look down, it's like 42 pounds, like a child on your back kind of thing. (laughs) I I was envisaging that when I was running, carrying a kid (laughs) on my back. (laughs) I was trying to use the scariest thing I could possibly think of. Yeah. So yeah. So when the, yeah. So the human head, it's twelve pound. It actually weighs when it's on top of the body with equilibrium. Okay. And for every inch forward it comes, it weighs another ten pounds. So the oh, average okay. runner that's running along, looking at the ground, their head is quadrupled in weight, um, and that makes it very heavy. And your spine has to take that weight. That immediately makes the whole thing a real challenge. And actually, your inner ear. The vestibular area or inner ear is where a lot of your balance and spatial awareness comes from. Well, that's designed for the head to be up with the eye line on the horizon because that was our job was to look for things coming and and making sure they didn't catch us and and that we did catch things. Mm. Um, Now, when you're running, you have to look down. Otherwise, you're going to end up losing your teeth. It's all very well. You know, your your head will get very light because there'll be no teeth in it. You do (laughs) have to look down. But I think we just need to change the default position because if you watch people running around a park, they run with their head down. Every now and again, they'll look up to make sure they don't hit a tree and then the head goes down again. You just need to reverse that so that the head is up and every now and again, you look down to survey what's coming and then the head comes back up. That is a game changer. I kid you not. That will change you, you know, as a runner, especially if you're an ultra runner, that yeah. will change everything. It's huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah, because I've, I've, I do quite a lot of trail running. So we live, I, I don't know, where are you based? Because so you mentioned Goring and that's not too yeah, far Yeah, so Goring, yeah. So I'm based on, kind of on the, I live by the river. So I'm on the, on the border of uh, Berkshire and Oxfordshire on the, on the Thames. So that's okay. Where, okay. That's where well, I coach from. I live in I live in a Bracknell. Oh no, actually not a million miles yeah. away. Then it's, yeah, it's okay. not it's not far at all. So when you mentioned Goring, yeah. I was like, I used to play uh, I used to play golf at Goring and Streetly quite a bit. Yeah, it's interesting you say golf because I I do a huge amount of video analysis with my work because I think you have to see yourself move. Mm-hmm. And golf, well, I think, was really the first sport to really get into that, wasn't it? And really get the hang of that. And uh, and I, and I think it's fundamental to 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 see yourself move. I think mm-hmm. you can't how anyone can teach anybody to do anything that has a movement to it without that person being able to see themselves. I, yeah. yeah like we said before a lot of the time it's you might feel like as the subject you're doing something and then you're doing something completely different and it's about reducing the boundary between that feel and real i think that's where you get that sweet spot yeah and a lot of my coaching is about that very thing so i get people so all the coaching i do is outside everything i do is outside never on a treadmill because your kinetic movement is completely different on a treadmill 
So all the coaching, analysis, everything I do is outside. And what I do is get people moving around a lot, video them, and really get them to body sense and think about the movement. So that actually when they've finished, maybe running 400 meters where that's videoed, they're thinking about the movement, how it feels, and then they can immediately register that against seeing themselves. Sure. That's an incredibly powerful way of learning because nobody runs badly on purpose. So mm. nobody runs bending down from the waist with their head down on purpose. We, mm. You know, we assume everything's good. Otherwise, we would change it. Um, but, but it's just being enlightened to that. And I think the other thing about the work is as well, it's also celebrating what people do well. Because as runners, we do things very well. But if we know why they're good, we might just accentuate them that little bit more. So I think running analysis has got to this kind of stage where it's about going somewhere and just kind of, it's almost like a character assassination and you're just picking on the things that aren't good and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Actually, good, good coaching for anything, goal for whatever it should be, should also be about what you do well. Just mm. understanding why you do it well so you, so you can make it even better. Yeah, do more of it. Going back, yeah. to the tre- going back to the treadmill thing, do you think, what's your opinion on treadmill training then? Is it, do you think that treadmill training is efficient in the way that we're programmed to run or do you think it's just a necessary evil? Well, I think, you know, so, so treadmills aren't the devil, you know, so I don't have anything against treadmills at all. But there is no doubt that when you run on a treadmill, your running dynamics, your kinetic dynamics are completely different than they are on terra firma. So your foot will be on the, the, the ground or the rubber for a different amount of time. Your oscillation will be different. Your cadence will be different. Your stride length will be different. Because to a degree, you're running on a treadmill to stay on it. You're not going to run the same way that you would if you were running outside on the ground. Okay. So that's why I would never analyze or coach anybody on the treadmill because their movement would be completely different. I don't, you just can't do, I don't see how you can do that because everything changes when you get onto terra firma trail. But if it's the difference between running and not running, then of course run on a treadmill, Mm. but you do have to accept that you move differently. So if you were training for 50 K race, let's just say that your lifestyle was such that you really just weren't getting out and you really did all of your training on the, all of your training on the treadmill Mm. that would cause you a problem because the moment you set foot on the ground, everything is different. The impact is different. Mm. The deceleration is different. The trajectory of the deceleration will be different. Mm. So although you're, you might have statistics that's told you you've run 600 miles in your training, Yes. The dynamics are completely different from what you're going to experience when you hit earth or concrete. Yeah. If they I did 600 different. miles on the treadmill, I think I'd go crazy. That's the other thing. I could not do that. Yeah, that's the other thing. We need to get, a, we, you need to get outside. Eh? I mean, that's yeah. a big thing. What about so, those? Oh, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 come on. Absolutely. What, what do you think about those machines then that aren't treadmills, but they're propelled by your own movement? Because I've seen the rise in those kind of, uh, running yeah. machines that are done by your own momentum rather than the actual you know cycle of the of the treadmill yeah yeah they so again so I, I think what you gain in one hand you lose in another because then you don't really have the cr- the correct deceleration or impact as you hit the ground so you're not you're not strengthening your body for that i see okay so so when you run so when you go out for your run tomorrow in your training when your foot hits the ground you've got two and a half times your body weight coming back at you 
Mm. Yep. So Newton's third law, any action is met by an equal and an opposite. So for a human, when they're running, when they hit the ground, you've got two and a half times your body weight coming back at you. Sure. Now, here's one of the big urban myths of running that makes us run wrong, I think, is that we're scared of that impact. Just the very word impact for a runner has you scattering, doesn't it? And we're, mm-hmm. we know, we're trying to buy trainers with big loads of rubber and all sorts of stuff. I think in the book, I once bought a pair of socks with silver lining in them that yeah. were going to make me bouncy. 25 pounds. And this was back when 25 pounds was a lot of money. <laughs> um, so impact for a runner, if you only remember one thing from this whole thing, impact for a runner is a beautiful thing mm. because impact turns into elastic energy and propels you forward. So our ability to run well is our ability to harness the impact we create when we hit the ground. Impact itself never injured a runner ever. It's mismanagement of impact that injures you. Mm. So we need as runners to develop a beautiful relationship with the ground where we take that impact and we dissipate it around the body to throw ourselves forward. I think we have a very adversarial relationship with the ground because we blame it for impact and all of our problems and we almost try and move over it without connecting with it, Mm. which ironically means we don't run with good gait, which means we don't dissipate the impact well and then it does beat us up. So you need impact coming back at you to create bone remodeling, fascial rejuvenation, muscle re-architecting. It's all based on weight bearing. You must have a beautiful relationship with the ground where you hit it because i've always read the idea that you should be running on your toes like i don't know where that came from i don't know where i heard that but to me it never really made sense because i thought to myself well if you're running on your toes surely then your toes are just going to get messed up (laughs) because you've got all your weight on your toes yeah i mean you wouldn't have to be yeah you wouldn't have to be a a genius to, to to know that so i think you know crazily a lot of gait analysis and coaching still now today is based on sprinting in the 70s which is where that came from the the toes yeah because you would sprint on your toes because you've only got to go 100 maybe 200 meters then you can go home and have your tea so that's fine the toes will cope with that um uh but not for any long distance but i and then we had this whole thing come out that heel strike was bad yeah yeah mustn't heel strike yeah that, that that's that's the that's really really bad and that's true. And I think that revolution of no, you must not heel strike by default sent a lot of people then onto their toes because they were just absolutely terrified yeah. of heel strike. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to do one or the other heel strike, because landing on the toes is a real no, no, yeah. you know, the calcaneus, the heel is, it can take it uh, to a degree because when your human walks, it does land on its heel mm. on the calcaneus and then rolls through. So it's a big, heavy piece of bone. It can take it, the toes, definitely can't but actually i think there's a there's a midway between between the two which is where i talk about this tripod landing mm. and i think that's how a human foot should land and what's the most efficient way to do that because in the book you gave that tried example and you said with foot placement is it feeling because you gave the example of the bowl so you get the example of the bowl and then you imagine that you hit it it drops on the floor and it all drops at the same time so then sure. you get the sort of that popping sound and you feel the same way are you running when you're, when you're running and, and your legs are turning, uh, is everything hitting the floor flat and then you're arching up and you're pushing off your toes? How does that work in, in practice? 
Yeah, so you're, so you're basically looking for that kind of tripod landing so that the whole of the foot comes down at the same time. That means the arch of the foot then creates this dome effect which dissipates the impact. So that's kind of what you're looking for. Whereas most people would just land just on there. 85% of runners in the Western world, you know, if I've worked with 3,000 runners one-to-one and a number of, goodness knows how many in groups, 85% of the, 84 indeed, in fact, 84% of those would heel strike. That's kind of where we are. Mm. So, and that tends to be because we don't get enough air in our run uh, because we're scared of impact, so we suck ourselves down to the ground. Yeah. So we almost have no alternative but to heel strike on a straight yeah. leg. It's more of a shuffle than it is. It a is, run. yeah, and and it, it is, and running. It's essentially running with a walking gait. That's where we are. That's where many of us are, and that's very inefficient. And it means we don't dissipate that impact well. So it means we slow ourselves down with every stride, and it also means that um, we've got much bigger chances of getting injured as well. And that's why running doesn't appeal to a lot of people because they give it a go uh, and it just isn't much fun um so you just but if you that's because they're running with a walking gate if we can run with a running gate you're a lot better off i know in the book you talk about the fact that shoes perhaps don't make that much of a difference now you're shaking your head but like with any sport there's obviously a lot of marketing that goes behind it i know golf's synonymous with that yeah. you know, every single year there's a new driver they can give you 20 <laughs> odd yards and there's professionals using clubs from like 10 years ago and they're still doing perfectly fine do sure. you think with the whole anti-heel strike thing they've used that to their advantage then and market a load of shoes that perhaps is giving extra cushioning you know i know there's underarm in particular have worked with even tire company to get the right rubber now Obviously, then you go to places in Kenya, Ethiopia, Uganda, like you said in the book, they're working with trainers that perhaps aren't the best, but then their form is is perfect and, and they're running and they're running efficiently. Now, yeah. if someone is getting into running, what would you recommend them to do? Would you recommend fo- focusing them on getting... What, how would you go about approaching gear in the sense of buying shoes? Because we're always told about injury prevention and longevity. Sure. No, absolutely. And, you know, with running being a weight bearing sport, you know, it's a serious, it's a serious thing to consider. So why would, so I, if you were getting into the sport or actually anybody who's, anybody who's running, start to think of your foot as the interface between you and the ground. So when your foot lands on the ground, it's got five really big tasks to sort out for you. It kind of acts as the interface. So it needs to create stability. It needs to maximize the proprioception from the quarter of a million nerve endings on the bottom of your foot. It needs to dissipate the impact through that dome effect. It needs to create elasticity through the plantar fascia, this beautiful piece of elastic on the bottom of the foot. And it also, depending on where it lands in relationship to your body, will determine how much you decelerate as you hit the ground. And that deceleration will turn into elastic energy. So your foot has five really big tasks to sort out. But it's your foot that does that, not a piece of colorful rubber. So I think it's a shame because if we think we could, you know, it, it falls into our mindset to think that we can order something and it comes through the post and it's in a nice box and we can open it. And listen, we all love to do that. Yeah. And we take it out and we think, yes, there we go. I'm now going to be bouncy or I'm now going to do this or I'm now going to do that. It fits into the way we love to live our life. We, I think we like that more than thinking, right, I'm going to spend three months changing the way I move. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, it doesn't change anything. You know, you're putting your, it's a, it's a sticking plaster over a fracture. 
Mm. I really don't think it changes anything at all. Um, do we we want to be protected from impact, and yet impact propels us? Mm. We just that, need yeah. to. That was the main thing I got from your book is the fact that we're always, I know we just discussed it, but the idea that we're always scared of impact. But yeah. in, your, in your book, you gave a great description when you went to that, uh, you went to that seminar and you was talking about the elastic band from your, from your feet to, to, yes. was it, was yeah. to here? Yeah, well, it actually, it actually goes up in the superficial front line of fascia, actually goes up into the skull from your oh, wow. toes to the skull, yeah. Yeah, so you're talking about the idea of, it's that elasticity at impact that gives you the propulsion going forward. But we're almost, we're almost told, you know, you have to be aware of the floor. It's like, <laughs> it's like when you're a kid, yeah. you're jumping around the living room and on the, on the sofas, cause there's, like, there's lava on the floor. So exactly. I feel like it's the same thing. It's the yeah. same thing. And yeah. what, what about the, the difference between, you know, trail running shoes, running on the road shoes is there really that much difference or is it just protection at that point because of yeah so i think so i work i work with a company called innovate who uh i don't know if you've ever worn their trainers but they they make they make trainers and for all for all types of environment but often for 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 mountains and hills and mud and trail and all that sort of stuff and if if i was working then what i would say is that you know the, the foot is an ingenious thing let's not second guess it by trying to tell it what to do but but what we can't do is run around in bare feet anymore you know you know if you go to the rift valley yes they can and if i go to the amazon jungle and the sahara yes they are they are still doing that trust me our feet are very very different to theirs you know? so we can't we can't do that we have to wear footwear but that footwear shouldn't tell our ingenious foot what to do it should to a degree protect us from the environment but allow us to interact with that environment as well so if you're running trail you want something that grips in mud and is good to you know, gripping on rocks if you're running on a track you want it to interact with the track if it's road interact with the road so the trainers should protect us from hard things that would hurt our feet mm. but allow us to interact with the environment but allow the ingenious foot bearing in mind it's one of the two big gifts that mother nature gave us elasticity and a clever foot allow it to do its thing the moment you start stopping it pronating or stop the arch working or load the heel, it can no longer do its job. It can no longer do its job. And do you think, and do you think that contributes to injury or do you think that contributes to efficiency and speed? Which one do you think it is? Or well, a bit of both. Yeah. So that's, a, yeah. So I think if you, if you think you've solved your problems by spending 150 pounds, then you're not going to think too hard about how you do things. So therefore, potentially, you're more likely to get injured. I mean, where does that impact go? If, if, if Newton's third law tells us that when you hit the ground two and a half times your body weight comes back at mm. you, that impact still comes back at us. I don't really think we dissipate it that well. The best shock absorber there is, is self-preservation. Mm. It's those quarter of a million nerve endings being able to feel the ground and make a clever decision about how you should relate to the ground. Mm. But what I'm, but what I'm not saying here, this is really, really important. I'm not saying that minimalist is good. Yeah. I don't think it is because we're not, we're not there. So, you know, I don't think we should all be chucking away our trainers that have got any cushioning and running and going and buying something super, super minimalist or just running around in bare feet because we're not, we're not that person. We're not that animal anymore. We do need protection from the ground, but not from impact just from what might hurt us i think and and you believe that triad system is the best tripod 
tripod sorry the tripod yep. system is the best way to go about alleviating any uh, potential injury related to impact yeah i think it is yeah because it i think it, it gives you the stability um and it allows the dome effect so that when i was talking about dropping the the uh, the bowl on the kitchen floor and it just making mm. a pop sound if it lands face down yeah it dissipates the impact that's why it doesn't smash the dome effect of your foot allows you to do that as well and so a lot of my work is you know i work on six continents and i and i study athletes all around the world but again i'm living with tribes and indigenous people who don't wear shoes uh very very rarely um and i watch how their foot works uh running as well as not running and often i have to get them to run because they don't run why would they run you know they don't they have no reason to run they don't get up at six in the morning and run around mm. uh for fun because they're kind of thinking about where their food's coming from and they don't want to waste calories but if i get them to run then I, it's a great way of watching the human foot work that has no preconceptions of biomechanics or anything yeah. or the the negative nurture of, of the western life either so it's just as, as close as i can get to how a human would move and you found that commonalities across multiple continents in the way in which they run yeah. yes Is that yeah. the common factor behind that yes it was absolutely there were some places so i spent some time it's in the book living in nepal uh with a, a community of sherpas so I wanted to try and crack this code of how come Sherpas can carry two and a half times their body weight and, you know, be amazingly strong. Mm. Uh, so I went out to live with them and trekked with them and worked with them and spent time with them. And I wanted to get them running to see how they would run. They can't run. There's just not in their software to run. When does it, they never run? Everything's either straight up or straight down, but I managed to find a flat piece of ground and got them to run. I was absolutely hysterical, uh, hilarious. Just loads of fun with them on it because they're super strong people, uh, but they just could not run because they never yeah. have. It just, so they were just very, very straight legs, just never, never, ever done it. So, you know, yeah, you, you would think that, uh, it would be in their DNA because they, you know, they don't have that negative nurture of Western life. But because they've never done it, they couldn't do it. Yes, they're really. They daily didn't have it in patterns. their didn't have it in their software. Then this is where what is movement? Well, for me, movement is a software thing because mm. a lot of people will think, right? Okay, I'm going to change my gait. I'm going to change my golf swing. I'm going to change the way I move. And we think in our mind because it suits our biomechanical thought process that we're going to create new muscle memory but muscles don't remember anything they're really not that clever and they're not that interested they might get strong at a task but they only do what your very clever software tells you to do so if you and i had a coaching session and you, even during the coaching session you're not teaching yourself new hardware muscle memory we're just rewriting your software once that's rewritten, that tells your muscles now what to do. Mm. Muscles really don't make the decisions. When you're running and you, the muscles produce lactic acid, so lactate, they're only doing it because your software tells them to. This is everything. Okay, so okay, can you explore that concept a bit more? So it's not my, it's not my field of expertise, okay. but when you're running, we, our muscles produce lactic, lactate. Yeah. Yep. We all know that. We've had yeah. that feeling, yep. But the muscles don't think, right, okay, you're working quite hard now. I'm going to produce lactate. Your software tells them to do it. Everything's really governed here. For what reason? To slow you down. You're just, yeah, you're, just, well, you're going too fast, too hard. This is your rev limiter. So then is that the part in the book where you're talking about the power of the mind in which you can just overwrite that in the sense of 
yeah is yeah, there a way yeah. that you can just convince yourself that it's you can just keep on going and then your body will rewrite itself well this is so you know we're all running around trying to build a big engine to get to get fitter and it's you know that you can make some gains there i think there are huge gains in the way that we move that can make double digit gains and i'm really convinced that here the gains are even bigger because this kind of it's all going on here but we don't even know what we don't know but what there's a lot of research going on that and, and i you know my job really is to go and look at beautiful movement um and then get data on that and video and then come back and work with people far cleverer than me mm. to tell me what it was i saw because i'm really not that clever so i will go and find very clever people that will tell me what it is and so in the book it's uh, samuel makora who explain you know will explain yeah how the, you know really this this is kind of governing everything that we're doing and the better we can train this the better we'll be so a lot of my coaching is based on really thinking about your movement and getting this linked to your to your movement yeah getting it as one thing mm-hmm. so i kind of really advocate this as you're running this self check-in where you're kind of checking as you're moving asking yourself questions and answering those questions with positive self-talk because yeah. that's incredibly important. Yeah. One question I did want to ask you was where do you think the benefits of running long distance sort of dissipate? Where do you think the marginal, um, the marginal gains of running a long distance just become about actually increasing your chances of any potential injury? Cause you know, when I think about these races that are, you know, multiple days across hundreds of kilometers, has there been any, you know, in-depth studies about the potential harm the potential benefits of doing such things like this or is it just more of a mental test than it is about the physical benefits of doing so well i think if you i think there's this general feeling that the longer you run the longer distances you run the more it becomes more the mind than the body i think Mm. it does be it definitely does become a mental game um i think i think it's like anything i think if you i don't think it's damaging i think i think if you run well then I, then I think it's, you, you know, you're strengthening your body. Uh, and if you run long distances, then, you know, to a large degree, you're strengthening the mind because, you, you know, you, you find a lot, of, a lot out about yourself in a, in a, a 50K or a 100K or a 200K or whatever. You know, you do learn a lot about yourself. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean, you, you know, I think you could get injured doing a park run, you know, anything if you don't do it well. Um, but I don't think, I haven't really come across any studies that myself that, that um that i would kind of recite that that say it's necessarily that bad for you okay. I, don't, I don't i don't think it's a a, a cut in 20 ways say right anything above 50 miles you're starting to damage yourself yeah yeah because i've never heard of anything related because when i think about someone running for that period of time no it crosses my mind to think okay maybe this is my pessimistic viewpoint but it's my point where's the the sort of the benefits of running that distance um uh, sort of when does that outweigh the, the so when does injury become more likely and all these kind of things that comes yeah out. sure yeah because, I, th- I think i think one thing that's really really interesting is so you know so i so when i'm work when i'm studied when i'm a, with my research hat on what i'm doing so i take a very anthropological view of a runner and i think right okay and this is how i started my work and my research was saying right okay i want my runners to run away a human is designed to move because by default that makes you a good runner you'd assume yeah because we're hunter gatherers and you know we used to chase animals and we did but you know our hunter gatherer ancestors would never have run more than about a half marathon mm. at about at about a four hour marathon pace so if you go off and do your 50k 
you're actually doing something far in advance of what a hunter-gatherer would have done. Mm. So you're actually taking human movement and then we've got to turn it into human performance. So, you know, the body isn't able to just run indefinitely. I think that's a fallacy. I, you know, we're not designed to be able to run three or 400 miles just because we're humans. People that are doing that are taking human movement and then squeezing human performance out of that. And that's where a lot of my work with athletes is, is creating that performance. Now, that performance, what percentage is related to efficiency? What percentage is related to nutrition? Is it up to the individual? Like, or is this an ongoing thing? Yeah, it's, 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 a good, it's a good question and everybody asks it. And it, it, it really depends on the person. I mean, I, you know, I'm a movement coach, so obviously I think movement is incredibly <laughs> up there. <laughs> I'm sure if you're a nutritionist, you'd say it's all about oh, the keto it's all diet. About, it's all, yeah, it's all about the calories. Yeah, I mean... I, what, I, what I would say is they're all incredibly important. I mean, I, you know, I spend a lot of time in extreme environments, have done as a runner um, and as a coach and as a researcher. And you, without a doubt, you know, you need the right kit. You need to be well hydrated. You need to have good calories in you. You need a good engine. And then you need to be able to transport all that well with good movement. So they're all really, really important, um, you know, definitely. And I, and I, know that I think the challenge for movement is, you know, so I talk every year at the Marathon des Saab um, Expo. Mm. Yeah, so there's a, every year for the people that are going to do the Marathon des Saab, there's a there's an expo, and um, there's various talkers on various things, and then they have an exhibit you can exhibit there as well. Nobody wants to come over and talk to me um, at my table because it's about movement. Everybody wants to feel the kit and get the backpacks out and look mm. at the trainers and yeah. you know look at the food and all of that sort of stuff. My stuff, I'm doing the talking. The talking goes well, um, but we because we love kit and things we can hold and touch and we love that. But you know we want to buy something. You know we love that. Yeah. What you know we're not. It doesn't turn us on so much to invest our time into something. Um, but yeah, I think that you know even though I am biased, the, the movement stuff is, you, you can get double digit gains from the way you move without a doubt. Huge. What's been the biggest improvement you've seen from an example of someone from your own experience, coaching them and seeing them improve in a way? Well, I tell you, well there's lots of them, but I tell you a guy who I really like, and he's a great guy as well, but I work with a guy called Damien Hall. Um, and Damien is, I think he's about 45 now, something like that, maybe 46, something like that. And Damien, probably seven or eight years ago, was running around sort of doing local village 10Ks dressed as a toilet. Um, winning, winning, yeah. winning those races dressed as a toilet. I thought, well, you know, I might actually be quite good at this. And he kind of progressed. And I started to, I started to work with him about, pretty much about then, because he was a journalist. Um, and so we got together for a magazine article. And, and I did some work with him and, uh, and kind of, I've, and I've worked with him over the last seven years and I've watched him progress. He's just broken the fastest known time for running the 268 mile Pennine way nonstop in 61 hours. Um, he came fifth in the UTMB, mm. um, which is probably the, one of the sexiest races on the planet, racing people like Killian Journey and, you know, some of the best racers on the planet. And he's got two young children and, you know, and, and is, has a family and is working. And yet he's racing some of the best runners on the planet. Yeah. And he's 45. And every year he just gets stronger and faster. Um, so he's a great example for anybody, really, you know, um, amazing absolutely amazing and that would you say is purely down to efficiency no nope, no nope. he ticks every single box 
every okay. single box. So he works on his mind, he works on nutrition, hydration, his strength and conditioning, his movement, everything. Yeah, okay. so I can't, I can't claim to have uh, <laughs> waved my wand over him and made him amazing. But I'd like to think that, that you know, that's one of it's the a, people, yeah, that it's, yeah. It's, you know, it's really, really made a difference to, without a doubt. Yeah. One thing that I, I know you touched on in the book is the, I think it was him as an example. I think he was, he was saying that when you go to like the UTMB that's in like the Alps and there's high altitude and increases in, in, um, in Ascension, you know, mm. I don't know. I think that one's like, you said 14,000 feet. Is that, is that correct? Uh, I'm not sure what they use. It's a lot. Yeah. With that. A lot one, more and, than that. Uh, a lot yeah. more than that. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like here, perhaps we don't have the same sort of elevation to train on, but he was saying perhaps that's not, that doesn't really matter as much. Is, would you say that's the case? If, how would you go about training for something like that if you don't have the same access to it? So, yeah, so it, I think it, it's always going to be a challenge if you're running in the mountain, if you're racing people in the mountains and they live in the mountains and you don't, then, you know, specifically point of view it's it's going to be harder i mean what damien does he gets up very early three o'clock in the morning drives to wales does a run in the mountains comes home and does a school run so um so he gets around it that way <laughs> um, but we all live you know we all live near hills so you can you can get into the hills and and practice um so you can't be doing the the real thing um but i think you know we can all get to hills and we can we can spend some time on them um, so it is a challenge if you if you live in London. You know, many people that will be listening will, will be living in London. Think, well, you know, Primrose Hill running up and down Primrose Hill could get a bit dull. You know, yeah. so a lot of a lot of people who take it seriously will go, you know, uh, for a, for a weekend or something like that and get some good numbers of hours in the hills. Um, but again, just move. You know, again, we we often think that we're on the hills because you know running up and down hills because we're trying to build up our muscles. It's not a muscle game. Mm. You know, it isn't a muscle game. It's just getting the body used to taking that, that impact of coming down hills um, and getting the posture good going up the hills. So it's just spending time on them um, and just kind of really thinking about what you're doing with the technique on them um, and getting better at that, get, getting better at this side of it rather than just having to spend endless time on the mountains. Is there any work that you can do really to improve, you know, any core stability? Does that help when it comes to running, stretching? What's the relationship between effective stretching and running for a long period of time? Where, where does that come in? Because I know obviously going and doing deadlifts is not going to help your running at all. That's just obviously for, for body mechanics. That just makes sense. I mean, how would lifting... Uh, yeah uh, 135 kilos or 140 kilos and then going out and running for two hours that's not, it's not the same movement but like how would someone go about increasing their endurance is it the only way to do it to then just go out to run well yeah i mean i'm a bit right wing on this and i uh, but i guess to a degree it's to get the conversation it's to get me you know my work as a coach and as a writer is to get people to think is to get people to ask themselves questions about what they're doing. You know, that, that's kind of what we want to do, isn't it? Um, and I see a lot of athletes now that are really spending a lot of time and energy on strength, what we will call strength and conditioning. Yeah. But I think that that's a challenge for us because if you, if you go to the gym 
and you do, I don't know, even, even, again, I'm a little bit right when this, and it's devil's, devil's advocate to a degree to get you thinking. But if we, even if we went to the gym and did things, even if we didn't do weights, but we did a load of single legs sort of lunges or squats or stuff like that, really all we're doing is getting strong at doing those things. Mm-hmm. They don't allow for impact or deceleration. They don't allow for range of movement. And if movement is a software thing, to a degree, it's potentially contaminating our software. Mm. Because running is a full body movement. Mm. Every single part of your body is getting involved when you run. So, and what really kind of reiterates that to me and and kind of where I learned this is, is, is if I go to Ethiopia and Kenya and see some of the best runners in the world, they don't have a gym. They build specific strength. So if they were to run around the trails, they are conditioning their body to make that sporting movement. Making that sporting movement creates absolute specific strength. So it's conditioning for strength. I'm not even sure what strength and conditioning is because most, if, you, if, you, if I was sat with 50 people, and I often am, coaching, if I coach groups, and I might say, right, what's strength and conditioning? People will put up their hand and, all they will talk about is the word strength. Mm. Never do they mention the word conditioning at all. They will just mention the word, well, I'm going to get strong because I want to do the task. Um, so but conditioning is conditioning the body to make the sporting movement. But in just bog standard strength and conditioning, you don't do that. You don't do the sporting movement at all. Now, there are some great strength and conditioners out there who will allow for that and do that. But it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge because running is a weight-bearing sport where you keep hitting the ground a number of times strength and conditioning doesn't get you ready for that mm, doesn't get ready for that that full body impact no and so you know i see a lot of, i work with a lot of uh, endurance runners uh, ultra runners who will you know who will race in in the spring and have just spent the winter strength and conditioning boy they look good you know when they're stood on the start line they look good um but, but a few miles in of impact and their body just isn't used to that yeah. So, it, so it's what you know in the book. I call it. I call it Darwinian fitness. That's how I like to think of it. So yeah. it's fit for the body. That the, the body gets fit at performing the task, mm. um, not necessarily engine fit, but fit to perform the task. It's both software and hardware. And mm. it's you know it's why a javelin thrower gets amazing at throwing a javelin, and why a high jumper gets great at high jumping, because there's software and their body adapts to that skill because they do it a number of times and it Definitely. adapts to it. You get a high jumper to throw a javelin. Boy, it's not going anywhere. You better duck. Yeah, and you get a javelin throw a dry high jump. It's not going over the bar. They're both incredibly strong in, and, and have good software, and, yeah. but their body isn't specific for the task. So I believe we can, to pretty much to a large degree, condition our bodies to do the movement, which creates specific strength, and we do that by running. Yeah. So if you've got an hour to kill and you want to be a better runner, run yeah just run yeah yeah just run i mean you now if there was a strength and condition here and there isn't and so that's not really fair but if there was they might say ah oh, yeah but if the body if the person isn't strong enough to make the movement of running yeah how can they run that's a val- that's a valid point but it's very rare i can't get somebody to run three or four hundred meters mm. and that's enough because tomorrow you run 600 and you build it and you build it we'd be happy to do couch to 5k for our engine why would we not do couch to 5k for building our body up to be fit enough to do that task? Sure. That actually relates to one question I do want to ask you when it comes to training plans, 
what's the best progression? Like, and everyone always says about 5% a week increase. Like, how would, how would you, how do you go about tailoring plans for? I don't, I don't do it. Oh, you don't, don't do it do, at all? I don't do training plans at all. No, I only do movement. Okay. So I, yeah. So I never did, touch training. What did you do? What did you do personally then? What was your approach? <laughs> don't do what I did. <laughs> I'm just interested. I mean, <laughs> I'm asking the question. <laughs> that's what sent me on this journey of, of trying to find a better way to run because I think every single mistake in the book I absolutely made. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I suppose I, uh, yeah, I, I kind of just, I, I overload. I think I, I increased too quickly in what I was doing. I think 10% I hear a lot is, you know, never increase anything by more than 10% at a time. Um, but um, yeah, I just, I just did whatever I thought I didn't, I did there wasn't anything very clever behind it. And, uh, and that showed to be honest with you. Um, but I, but I don't touch it at all because I, I just, I believe that if we're to be good at something, you just need to try and specialize in one thing. If I'm doing mileage plans and before you know it, you're doing nutrition and hydration and you're cutting keys and making number plates, you're doing all sorts of things. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I just I try and uh, just try and do what I do. And it works really well because what it means is I can work with coaches all around the world who will send me their, their clients to do analysis on them because they know that we, we don't, we don't cross over. Yeah. So I work with some amazing coaches. What I would say is that generally from the coaches that I work with who are, who are fitness coaches or do mileage plans, the, the, the work is going more towards, it used to be long, long, lot of time on feet, long, long runs, quite low tempo. But that's all changing now and people are being more dynamic. So not so much time on feet, more tempo, more intervals, that kind of thing. Um, and from a movement point of view, I would absolutely agree with that. Because mm. if you look at a, an ultra runner, let's say you were doing it. So you're going to do your 50K run. Yep. And so your training was based on doing that 50K run. And you might think to yourself, right, I'm going to run that 50K at a certain pace. So I'm going to do all my training at that pace your movement will change based on how fast you run. So if you're running around constantly at just a 50K pace, your running dynamics will just kind of move to suit that. So you might have a certain oscillation, a certain stride length. Your foot might be on the ground for a certain amount of time. If you don't challenge those dynamics to be bigger, when you do your race, you're going to have to run that 50K from a movement point of view at your peak. That's hard to do. Whereas if some of your running was at a much longer stride length than you would ever need to move at, a much higher oscillation, a lower ground contact time, everything more dynamic, when you come to run your 50K, you're running well within your comfort zone of what your body can do. And so... You think that's the idea of working at like a 5K pace and your 10K pace and getting that yeah. down and then doing that other work as well? Yeah, absolutely. Now we do interval training for our for our engine, wouldn't we? So we might do a fartlek or interval training or tempo training, which is essentially shorter and faster than we would normally do to give ourselves a bigger engine. I believe we should do shorter, faster stuff to create a body that can be more dynamic than it ever needs to be in the actual race. 
that's i think that's really really important we don't do that enough and i think ultra runners definitely don't because if you just run around at the same pace all the time this lazy hunter gatherer brain gets very clever and just slowly and surely by osmosis just gets you to do less and less and you just shrink into yourself because it just wants you to go and sit underneath a tree and wait for a few days until something comes past you can eat yeah exactly or go dig for some roots it definitely doesn't want you running around dynamically chasing <laughs> nothing or not being chased by anything it can't work out why you would do that yeah do you yeah. still do you still go out and compete then no no i don't race anymore i run i run so when i because i i'm very lucky i get to travel a lot and i go to some amazing places so i run when i'm you know in all of those locations yeah. and i'll get up on a beautiful morning and, and go for a run um but i don't compete anymore from a perspective of developing if i'm if i'm going to look at me myself you know i'm doing this 50k in december and i was looking at some other races at the end of next year and the middle of next year, in fact, uh, you know, increasing it and, you know, doing some research. I didn't even realize there's so many races in the UK anyway. Like I was, I was amazed because yeah, I thought that that's quite cool. And where does, where does the, cause anyone can go out and do like a hundred miler, you know, they might, but they most likely will feel terrible after doing it. Where's the progression? Where's the, where's the time taken in order to, to, to step up to something like that so so what from your own experience of body movement and all these kind of things what's the body mechanics and the engine related to doing 50k in comparison to 100k in the comparison to like a 100 miler from a body mechanic point of view does it make much of a difference the actual length in which you do or the distance in which you do is it just nailing that body mechanics yeah I, so i think you know if we if we load the body well and we, we nourish it well and we hydrate it well, then, you know, we're seeing by the length of these races, there really, there almost seems to be no limits as to what the body can do. We are doing far in advance of what our hunter-gatherer kind of um, ancestors would have done, but there really seems to be no limit. And what's really, really interesting, so I work with a, a guy called Dan Lawson, and Dan's just broken the record for running to Land's End to John O'Groats. So good for him. He's just literally wow. a few days ago finished that. So he did brilliantly. How long did that take? It took him uh, I don't, nine days and something. Not, not, not long. Yeah, not long. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Dan's an, an amazing runner. But, but you know, I, I, I think if we, if we use, again, it comes back to using the ground correctly. If you ran over the ground for that amount of days um, and just impacted with the ground, it wouldn't, you know, you, you'd have a tough time of it. But if we learn to use and have the relationship with the ground that we should have, it changes everything. So just about every animal, so think about this when you're running, just about every animal on the planet has a curve of speed. So it goes from slow and starts to get faster and faster and faster. Somewhere in that curve, it will have its most efficient speed. A bit like if you drove a car at 56.6 miles an hour, it does loads of miles to the gallon. Yep. So animals have the same. They have a curve of speed, and at some point on that curve of speed, they hit their most efficient speed from an energy point of view. There are only two animals on the planet that don't have that. They have what's called a flat cost of transport, and that's kangaroos and humans. Okay. Both run on two legs, pretty much the only two that do. Primates can, but not for long. They fall over um, or wobble. Um, so really kangaroos and humans are the only two that really do it and 
what's what's fantastic for us having this flat cost of transport is that the reason you don't expend any more energy running a 10 minute mile than you do a six minute mile is that as you run faster you hit the ground harder so if i'm running a 10 minute mile i might hit the ground at 2000 newtons of impact okay and that'll give me some elastic energy and throw me forward if i'm running a six minute mile I might create two and a half thousand newtons of impact, which springs me off even more. So for a human and a kangaroo, the faster it goes, the more elastic energy it creates. Mm. So the ground is the very thing that creates the propulsion. Mm. So if you get that right and you load the body well and you nourish it well and you hydrate it well, probably sleep is the thing that will, would pull you down. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've just got to sleep enough to be able to continue. And often on these long races, it's the person that doesn't have to sleep. Um, so I work in the book with uh, Pavel Polonsi, who's an amazing guy. He's a physicist by education. So he's an athlete and a, and a super clever guy. And I love working with him. I coach him and I love working with him on research. And he's six foot five. So he's a big lad and he's about 95 kilos. So not the way we would often mm. picture runners. But he's won the... He's won the spine three times. Um, and uh, yeah, one of his great USPs is that, you know, he really can sleep maybe one hour in four days or something. He just doesn't, doesn't sleep. So he just crazy. Keeps, yeah, he's crazy. But he'll do it at home to see what it's like. You know, he's just, you know, that's part of his training. Yeah. So he just you know, doesn't he, sleep. Just yeah. Train himself. Yeah. I've been and stayed with him in his apartment in the, in the Czech Republic and he'll be sat up all night just working and stuff and just doesn't really need to sleep much. So when that comes to racing people who do, he can, you know, that, that's, that's, that's a big advantage. So I think sleep, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't recommend any of this to your, to your listeners, by the way, because it's a crazy thing to do. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, sleep becomes the determining factor. We can move almost in, indefinitely if, if we nourish the body and move well. It's amazing. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting when you hear about people that, for instance, do these two, three, four day races and they only sleep on like two hours, three hours, because you think to yourself, you always get told, you know, you have to have your eight hours of sleep a day, a day. But that is true, obviously, but they're doing these races for a small period of time and then they're going back. Uh, Yeah, yeah. They're doing it every day. No, no, and it is adrenaline. And again, it's not my field of expertise, but, but I've done 184 miles and I think I did that in 57 hours. Um, without sleep so that's being on your feet for 57 hours uh you get some great hallucinations i mean it's an amazing it's a great experience it's uh, you see some stuff <laughs> but um in your experience yeah. of doing something like sorry to interrupt in your experience of running 184 miles what point does it just become your mind just completely takes over your body and you can't even feel your body like what happens to your body during that and what happens to your mind Trust me, you can feel your body. <laughs> you, can re- you can really feel your body. Um, yeah, like, like, like you said earlier on, the longer, the longer the stuff is, the more the mind kind of comes into play, to be honest with you. I think once by, by that time, I'd kind of cracked the code to a degree of, of how to do it. And so um, it, 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 didn't, it didn't hurt that much. But it, yeah, it is very much a, a mental game. Mm. Yeah. Wait, when you said you cracked the code you mean you just of movement of movement yeah okay yeah so by then i'd started to understand how how to move you know what got me into going on this journey around the world to find better movement was the fact that i you know i was getting injured and could never have dreamt of doing that you know 
Um, so, uh, but by then I'd started to work it out and started to understand it. So it was kind of significantly easier. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Who in your opinion has the best running form that you've seen? Wow. Um, so quite a few. So uh, Kipchoge moves amazingly well. Yeah. Um, uh, with Kipchoge, who's the, the, the guy, so he's the world record holder for the marathon mm-hmm. and broke the, the, the sub two. Uh, he, I think he moves absolutely beautifully. Um, and uh, a runner that I worked with recently, actually in, uh, in Kenya, called Solomon Boyt, uh, who's a, a young runner. Um, amazing. I think he moves absolutely beautifully. I think we'll hear a lot about him in the future. Is that the um, one who ran 10K in 26.52? Because I saw that in the book. So that was, that was Ronex Caputo, who took 14 seconds off the world 10K record. Uh, road I record that and I was like ridiculous I know and, mate, and I get to work with I get to work with Rose. so Solomon boy is he, he trains with Ronex uh, uh, okay so Ronex is 20 and Solomon's younger um, so these oh, guys wow. are just going to be world superstars uh, yeah absolutely amazing and I I did a, a documentary uh, called the secret of the Kenyan runners where I went out and um, did some work on kind of trying to explain why why these runners are amazing as they are and got to work with a an absolute legend called Brother Colm, who was a, 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 a guy who went out in the in the 70s uh, to Kenya as, a, as, a, as an Irish priest, a missionary, went out and, and started working at St. Patrick's School and got the kids running and that's just produced some of the best runners on the planet. David Radisha is, is, is one of his runners. And so I'm very lucky to spend time with, with him and work with him on the documentary. But got, yeah, but, but managed to, to work with... Um, uh, Ronex and, and Solomon and Solomon yeah just moves absolutely beautifully Jim Wormsley is very in, very interesting runner in America mm. I think he moves with huge amounts of elasticity and uh, got got to watch him very closely last year in the um, western states in California okay where he won and broke the record with a hundred mile race through the mountains and just run the whole thing but he's doing kind of Olympic qualifying times for 10k you just see he moves in a in an incredibly elastic way i don't i don't coach him so i don't know if he knows that mm. but he just moves in a way where he just accentuates that elastic movement because the big thing to remember about elastic the fascial system and elastic movement is anything with the word elastic in it it doesn't want any oxygen or calories mm. it doesn't produce lactate it's kind of free and so it's getting that fascial system down so that you can just keep on going yeah it'll okay. do a load of the work for you it'll just do a load of the work for you but we're running around trying to use our muscles which want oxygen and calories and produce lactate and rip and tear and complain it's really interesting and this is where yeah yeah it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating and uh because it's it's how we think we power our body yeah it's how we think we but but we shouldn't we shouldn't they're such a limited energy source yeah i've been reading a lot about heart rate training so do you think that working with becoming more efficiently with the facial system and with the things that you were saying in the book, does that not come into consideration? Definitely. I mean, I, again, you know, I don't train fitness, so I don't get too excited about heart rate, but basically the heart is a a pump that pumps blood around the body so we can get oxygen to our muscles. If the muscles don't have to do so much work, the heart doesn't have to pump so hard. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my work with an athlete about getting them, um, more efficient is to take the toll off of the muscles do and replace it with stuff. So once, when you do the body movement, 
well so so my work now so if we hadn't have gone into into lockdown the first part of this research would have already been done but we did so i couldn't do it but i have now through ethics research that's going to have runners running outside in the natural environment with uh, 20 sensors on the body all over the body that can give this 3d image of the person running um, and this is outside on the trails in Kenya or wherever it would be, but also collecting gases as well. So we're looking at CO2 and oxygen. So you can actually look at how people run and get running data and 3D images of them running and look at how much oxygen they're using as well. So we'll be able to really start to drill down into this stuff. It's going to be really, you know, amazing. It will change everything. Yeah, absolutely okay. change. Everything. Oh, that sounds really yeah. interesting. Yeah, and it's so frustrating that we didn't manage to get that done. And, we'll, and, and I'll do that all around the world. So on Kenyans, uh, on Ethiopians, I'm going out to Japan, uh, oh, wow. all around the world, and on indigenous people and tribes as well. So just to understand how people move and how much, how beautifully they move and what impact that has on how much oxygen they need. Because, you, you know, we're running around in the Western world you, screaming for oxygen because we're running using our muscles. Do you think people who run at altitude have more efficient running because they are able to, they have to use their body better because they have less access to oxygen? No, because I think the body, the body adapts to the fact that it's, so they just produce more red blood cells, I guess, to, to help with the, the fact that they're at altitude. So I don't, I don't necessarily see better people running better at altitude good runners go to altitude to train yeah. so you will see good runners at altitude but i don't it, so it, physiologically it's a game but it doesn't make them move better i see what i don't think yeah yeah in, I don't, in, I, in, I, in the same way that you, you the, the nepalese the sherpas absolutely i mean i know it's a good question in it, in it because actually you could say okay well if the person is struggling with getting enough oxygen they'll they'll adapt their movement so that they don't need as much oxygen but yeah. while they're doing that they're producing more red blood cells which will adapt them quicker so okay. uh, yeah so um but I, there's probably a phd in that though i think oh, well, <laughs> I, I definitely won't be the person doing it <laughs> <laughs> so, who's um who's funding that then is that through a university is that through an organization uh, i pretty i so I, over the last 10 years i've funded all my own research oh wow every, yeah everything i funded myself um that way you don't have to you don't have to find the right you don't have to find the right results and the, the, and the results are the results and you don't have to kind of keep anybody happy yeah. um it's challenging sometimes when it creating you know funding everything that's a lot of traveling and and stuff and while i'm traveling i'm not potentially uh, you know i'm not earning any money while i'm yeah. traveling and researching um so uh yeah i fund everything I, f I fund all of the research myself um and uh, hopefully continue to do that i think with, sometimes with the university i might fund match so they'll get a grant and then i'll i'll match that funding mm -hmm. um so that that sometimes happens um but it's yeah it's, it's essentially i i pay for everything myself now i respect that because then the results the results because you you would have that at the back of your mind with academic funded uh yeah and, 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 and the thing is sometimes. i mean yeah absolutely and the thing is up until recently you know i think where where is where science goes wrong sometimes i think is that we try and take the natural world and cram it into a lab well you know I, i'm not going to learn how africans move beautifully in the rift valley by luring them into a lab and sticking them on a treadmill it's not the same 
but most research that's wants, that's going to be published kind of needs to go through ethics and therefore it needs a controlled environment so it kind of needs to happen in the lab yeah. but i'm not necessarily interested in the results so but things are changing now technology is getting ever better so you can actually take the lab out into the natural environment and that's super exciting that that's what i'm yeah. really excited about so that we're able to do that a little bit more now so um we'll learn loads more mm. so you believe that's the next step in human performance when it comes to body movement and fascial related stuff is actually measuring them in the field yeah. with the use of oxygen yeah. and and, and yeah. understanding them in a bit more depth definitely without a doubt it has to be specific to to what that person is doing without a doubt and uh, that that can happen that that's starting to happen now so we'll learn loads more um and just yeah more, more technology with more sensors telling us things that you know I, I can see things and i think i know what's going on but you can't beat a bit of data to tell you exactly what it was you saw yeah so, to confirm um, your hypothesis yeah exactly yeah exactly exactly right and you know we shouldn't be you know too much of science is just data crunching and nothing else and i think you then can miss the bigger picture so i think there needs to be a healthy helping of what you see what you feel the perception of the person that did it which we very rarely get you know you really you know all the really my coaching if i'm coaching your perception of your movement i need to know the perception of some people who move really well to try and understand kind of what it is you know so i'm passing over mm. so a lot of my work when i'm working with elite athletes is or to getting in front of elite athletes is to try and suck from them what they think is going on as they move because mm. that tells me where to look tomorrow mm. that's incredibly important data you know if i watch a beautiful runner run i can pretty much tell how long their foot's on the ground for what their oscillation is what they're striking is i can kind of see that i should probably get out more but i can see it <laughs> what i can't tell is what going what's going on in here yeah. what they is creating that beautiful movement and certainly in the early days that was how i started to crack the code by getting in front of amazing runners and just getting them to tell me what they think they're doing and that showed me what to video and what to analyze tomorrow do a lot of them know what they're doing or does a lot of it come naturally yeah a bit of both a bit of both i think a lot of it does come naturally and, and you're certainly in africa and i don't think i talk about it in the book i don't know i don't think i do but in africa they'll run in eights around the track so you'll you'll often see eight people running together around the track and very often the first six will move absolutely beautifully in in unison absolutely beautifully and often you'll see the two at the back don't move so well and they're probably new to the group well, what will happen is they're not really coached that much on their movement. What they do is they drop in to the eight and by osmosis, by flow, by being surrounded by beautiful movement, they start to adapt their movement. So it's just this production line of incredible runners that they all they'll move on and go off and race in Europe and do other things. And then the newbies will move to the front and you just have this constant production line of amazing movement. And I get for me when I'm coaching, I don't really have the, you know, I don't, I'm not lucky enough to have eight world-class Africans for my clients to run around with. Imagine, so that's just in the garage. And, and just and, and kind of show them how, what beautiful movement is. And, but it's an incredibly effective way of doing it. Yeah. The eight Africans would be the, the best way, but it's a good way of doing it. In, so getting them you, you a good way to do it is just to watch good runners run. Do you think that can help in the way of visualizing the best I, way I to run? I, I, I think it can, as long as you understand what's good about their movement. I mean, you know, we all, we all, if we watch someone run through the pipe, I think, wow, that looks amazing. But it's knowing why. So, so that's where the coaching comes in. So you can use the examples alongside them running, um, but you've got to be able to explain to them why it's good.
you know what's good about it just watching someone move beautifully doesn't allow you to then just go and move beautifully yourself it could help but i don't think it's a way to learn yeah you know, i think i think it has to be explained with with the clients that you've worked with both athletes and you know from people who have started what are the common i want to say flaws but what would you say are the common things that you'd address in biomechanics what are the things that you would say are the common things that people are doing wrong what do you think more people could focus on if they are consistent runners whether they do 5k 10k half marathon marathons where do you think more most people are losing time and efficiency in their running i think if to to pick the biggest one i think is people running with a walking gait so as a human we have a walking gait which is essentially landing on our heel and kind of rolling through on a relatively straight leg. That's how a human's designed to walk. Uh, When we run, we should land on this tripod landing and kind of have our legs circling more underneath us. So really it's for most people, they are running because their feet are in the air. So that's technically running, but with that walking gait, and that's the biggest one to address without a doubt is huge. Absolutely huge. And I think it, I think it's born largely from people being scared of impact and going for the path of least resistance of not being too dynamic just doing something that feels easy we can't we but it's not our fault we're hardwired to take it easy you know when i go and stay with tribes and indigenous people they'll do their tasks that they've got to do but when they're not doing that task they just lie down because they can't afford they're not going to go off for a run because they need those calories so they will just lie down and just sit down and chat and hang out for hours and hours and hours. And it's not that they're lazy. It's just that they need to hang on to what they've got. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we're wired the same way. Yes, we can dial for food and just go and get food anywhere we want it. But we're still wired. And that's why I think we often binge eat and stuff like that. Because back in the day, if you came across a tr- tree full of fruit, you'd have had to have eaten that fruit because someone else might have come and got it. Yeah. Many of us are still wired in that way, I think. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, yeah yeah so we have stone age brains in a, in a space age world i guess don't we and that's yeah. that brings its own challenges i think that's really interesting as well from I, I like the fact that you approach running from an anthropological point of view because i think it's linked it's all linked to human performance and history and the way in which society is all um, sort of interlinked with one another i think you can't look at human performance you can't look at ways in which we go about living our day-to-day lives and sort of separate that from the way in which you know athletes do their business and everything that's all linked and i did like that in the book that you explicitly talked about sort of the history of human evolution and why we are at the position we are in and do you see like the way i see long distance running i think it's becoming more and more popular i think more and more people are getting into the sport is is that what you've seen in your experience yeah as well? def- without without a doubt i think it's one of the big growing areas of the sport ab- ab- absolutely and i think there's various reasons for that i think you know once you've done a few marathons you know unless you're going to go to amazing locations or you're really going for a pb then you kind of want to want to look for something else same with triathlons and you know 10ks and stuff so the ultras you really are you know, you're standing on the line of an ultra potentially thinking, can I even do this? Whereas if you've done a few marathons, you pretty much know, you know, unless you do, unless something bad happens, you're going to finish. Whether it'll be a PB, who knows? But you pretty much know you can do it. So it gives us the ability to step into the abyss. Yeah. You know, it really does. And, and I think we love that. And we love the adventure of it. And I think with the ultra running, the, the camaraderie is massive. 
absolutely massive. You know, and it's, and it's not odd. You know, we used to earn our living by running around in groups. And I think it's not odd that we like to do that. You know, we like to get out there and run kind of almost off piste sometimes and just mm. and just get out there and do it. And, and uh, the camarader is great. The, the, the next book I'm working on kind of really investigates, you know, the power that we get by being in a group. Mm. Um, and I think we really we, we you know, I see that a lot with tribes and indigenous people and training camps and stuff like that. And, you know, we're, we're very definitely more powerful as a group. Um, and I think we're lose, losing that in the, in the Western world. Mm. You know, the, the tribe now is probably social media, I guess, mm. um, which can be a great way of achieving things, I suppose. I'm not much of a, I'm not really big on that sort of stuff, but we, we miss out on a lot of stuff that a group gives. Mm. Um, and I think the ultras, people find that. They love that. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a growing, growing side of the sport. Are you going to, do you foresee sort of Olympians, elite runners who focus in the Olympics moving into ultra running? Do you see that happening as well? Well, I think, you know, I think for, if you, the Africans is an interesting one. Um, and, you know, really that I guess the business model for the Africans, you know, is to, it's a, it's a, it, it, they run for money, essentially, you know um you know running running out of poverty is one of the things that's often cited as making the africans good is that they're they're running because they're running themselves out of poverty well no, that's true to a degree um there isn't much money in ultras so you know they they really wouldn't be that excited about doing it but that's changing so there's money coming now into ultra running there's prize money starting to come in um so i guess if you're a 33 year old 34 year old marathon runner who probably isn't going to compete at the top end at marathons anymore, so therefore won't get paid, could move over to ultras because in your mid-30s, you're a baby in the ultra world. Um, and um, potentially, you know, give your uh, career some longevity. So I think, it, yeah, it may well. It may well happen. Yeah. That's, that'll be exciting. It's ex- I'm, I'm really... Uh, really excited to have signed up for my first one to be fair yeah listen honestly i think you know like i think you know i work with a, i've analyzed an austrian guy carl uh in the i think the arctic the desert and uh the jungle he's an amazing uh, austrian athlete he's in his 60s super strong guy yeah. and i remember him once telling me that life is a multi-day ultra and, and, and you know he's right because in a, in a, you know in an ultra you you just it's life in primary colors it's like the opera you just get everything you know you, yeah. will, you will go through all of the emotions good bad you know you'll love it you'll hate it you'll really find out about yourself it's amazing and in a relatively controlled environment as well you know mm. so yeah it's a great thing i think everyone should do one without a doubt mm. yeah without. I'm, super, I'm, I'm super excited anyway <laughs> shane thanks so much for this it was great speaking to Pleasure. you the book um the book's the lost art of running a journey to rediscover the forgotten essence and human movement thank you so much for sharing the book and like i said it's so timely uh, and i can't wait for the next one you said you were writing it so yeah I'm yeah i'm yeah busy working on that as we speak is, is uh is there a due date for that or is it just no not at the moment no but i'll let you know <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm sure you will i'm sure you will <laughs> Great. Well, I look forward to reading that one as well. And and once again, thank you so much for taking the time. That was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Great. Thanks. No problem.